Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to, uh, to be here this morning uh, with you here at the uh, National Congress in Rural Education. Uh, this is actually my second year here. I had the honour to, uh, uh, to be here last year and to give a, a presentation uh, on the topic of assessment. And some of you might remember my, uh, my presentation from last year uh, if you were, uh, if you'd attended that session. Uh, my presentation is titled, Be a Sage on the Stage, How Traditional Methods of Instruction Can Improve Student Learning. Uh, I'm pretty sure that that title alone should generate some interesting discussion and feedback. And uh, so I am certainly looking forward to, uh, to having some good discussion. Um, I've designed the presentation in such a way that uh, I will make sure that there's time at the end for questions and comments. And uh, I will also say at the outset uh, that I'm perfectly fine with people having a variety of opinions. Uh, I know that this is a topic that, uh, uh, that there's more than one viewpoint on within the field of education. Uh, you have good teachers at all different sides of the spectrum. I want to make that very clear from the outset. A uh, little bit about me, uh, on a part-time basis, I do policy research work for the uh, Frontier Centre for Public Policy. Uh, the Frontier is a think tank that is headquartered in Winnipeg. It also has offices in Saskatchewan and Alberta. And uh, so I do that uh, on a part-time basis where I will write uh, research reports and commentary that's been published in a variety of uh, newspapers. Uh, but my primary job and the main job that I do is that I am a teacher. Uh, I am a public high school teacher. Uh, I'm in my 15th year of teaching, so I have about 15 years of teaching experience. The first seven years of my teaching were at the grade, mostly at the grade five level, so the middle years grades, and then for the last eight years I've been teaching high school social studies. So I've taught a variety of subject areas and grade levels uh, in a public school, in, in, in uh, a rural school in southeastern Manitoba. And uh, uh, I always make sure to, uh, uh, to make it clear what my, uh, my teaching background is, because some people, if they see just Frontier Center, they think that, uh, oh, he doesn't know what it's like in the classroom, he's just a think tank guy. Uh, that is not true. Uh, my primary job is teaching. Uh, hopefully my uh, clicker is working here. There we go. Uh, and uh, where to get more info about me beyond that? Well, there's the Frontier Center website. I also have a personal website, michaelswagster.com, uh, where I put links to uh, uh, my reports, commentary, media interviews, speeches, and, uh, and so on. Uh, in 2010, I had the opportunity to co-author the book, What's Wrong With Our Schools and How We Can Fix Them. And uh, that's, that book certainly generated some uh, discussion across the country. And then more recently, uh, you'll notice on the left-hand side, a handbook entitled uh, A Parent's Guide to Common Sense Education in Saskatchewan. And then there's also an, an Alberta version of that handbook as well. Uh, the, the handbook in particular is on my website. And uh, so anyway, that handbook is, uh, is available on my website. And uh, you will find a lot of the research that I cite today is also cited in that handbook. And uh, so that's uh, just a little bit about, uh, little bit about me. So, the presentation, Be a Sage on the Stage, How Traditional Methods of Instruction Can Improve Student Learning. This generates a lot of reaction because everyone seems to have a different idea about what words like traditional mean. And uh, so I would like to define uh, what I mean when I talk about uh, traditional education. Uh, and uh, so what do I mean by traditional instruction? Uh, several things. I mean that the teacher is in charge of the classroom. And again, this, uh, this is one of those things that, uh, that largely goes without saying, but I just want to emphasize this point, that when you walk into a, uh, the type of classroom that I'm envisioning that I'm going to be talking about here, it's one where the teacher is clearly in charge. Uh, it is also one where there is a focus on a defined body of knowledge and skills. There are specific things that everyone should know, 
specific facts that everyone should know. Uh, whether it's in, in the area of math or science or social studies, uh, everyone should know about the history of our country. They should know about Confederation. Uh, they should know about uh, the different world wars. They should know about the contributions of our Aboriginal people. Uh, everyone should know these things. There's defined knowledge that everyone should have in common. And uh, no, this doesn't mean that's everything they should know, but there are certain defined things that everyone should know. Direct instruction takes place, and to put it simply, this is where the teacher explains things, students follow along, and then they have an opportunity to practice. Uh, new concepts are taught step by step and sequentially. So for example, in a subject like math, uh, you start with, the, uh, with simple concepts, practice those, and then move on to more complex topics. That's what I mean by, uh, uh, by, uh, by traditional. Uh, in a traditional classroom, you would find a certain amount, not exclusively, but you would have some individual seat work that gradually progresses in difficulty. In other words, students have stu assignments that they're working on, uh, and in some cases workbooks, but, by own, but certainly not always, uh, but where you do a series of questions, and then you master those, you move to the next level, and then the next level, and, uh, and you keep going. And also a moderate use of technology. Uh, I'll certainly be making it clear that, uh, that I do use technology. I'm using technology right now, obviously, so I do believe in it. Um, but I also believe in it being used in moderation. So that's what I envision when I'm talking about traditional instruction. I also want to make clear what I'm not envisioning. What is not traditional instruction as I'm defining it here? Well, it is not a case where the teacher lectures for the entire time with minimal student interaction. So it is not simply walking into a classroom and then for the next 60 minutes, without a pause or an interruption, the teacher just talks. Uh, some of you might remember the show, uh, The Wonder Years, I believe it's called, where the teacher is droning on and on and on and on. Uh, that may be traditional in some people's minds, but that is certainly not what I'm envisioning. Uh, I'm not remotely interested in anyone teaching in the way that, uh, that the teacher does on, on the Wonder Years. Or on Charlie Brown, uh, those old, uh, the, the, the old, where the teachers won't, won't, won't. Again, that's not what I'm, uh, what I'm referring to. Uh, I'm also not referring to memorizing outdated and or irrelevant facts. So it's not simply about sitting around and memorizing everything and ev anything and everything. Uh, there's some memorization, but that's not all that we do. Uh, it is not about the harsh discipline of students. This is another misnomer that comes up when some people hear the word traditional, so I want to make it absolutely plain. This is not in any way looking at uh, uh, corporal punishment, which is uh, obviously quite outdated, uh, or, uh, or harsh discipline. Uh, that, is not, uh, that is not what I'm uh, envisioning. Uh, it is not about teaching each class exactly the same way. Uh, the, uh, you do switch things up, and uh, one day you might do one thing, another day you might do something different. And it is not about a total ban on technology. Uh, again, some people have chosen to take that route. Uh, I have not, although I do have some concerns about how far uh, the, uh, the emphasis on technology has gone, and I'll be talking about that in, uh, in just a little bit. Uh, to put it in a uh, sort of a chart format, because uh, we, we tend to see these fairly often, um, I've labeled the two different sides, the two different sides of the spectrum, and it is a spectrum because there's obviously plenty of stuff in the middle. Uh, traditional versus constructivist. And again, there's many words uh, that, uh, uh, that, that constructivist can also be defined as. Um, it, you can also look at this as teacher-centered versus student-centered or, uh, or traditional versus uh, largely discovery learning. But you'll see on the left-hand side, uh, traditional classroom uh, being teacher-directed uh, as opposed to primarily student-directed. Uh, uh, the idea that there's a canon of knowledge, that there's actually, we can identify things everyone should know, and we can actually list those things and say that, every, hey, everyone should know these things and have these particular skills. 
as opposed to the primary focus being on knowledge created by students. Uh, there are some key concepts in the history of science and math that took experts uh, uh, years and years to develop. You're not going to recreate it in 30 minutes in a grade 7 math classroom. Uh, not, very, not terribly likely. Uh, most of the time in a traditional classroom, the desks are in rows. Not always, but often. Uh, and then on the other side, the desks are arranged in groups. Again, it's a spectrum. In my classroom, I sometimes put them in groups. But most of the time, yep, they're in rows. Because I want them to be able to see me when I'm explaining things. Uh, whole class instruction uh, is where the primary instruction is taking place. On the other side of the spectrum, most of the instruction preferably tends to be within small groups. Uh, in terms of instructional methods, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the, old cl the classic phonics versus whole language debate. I'll talk more about that in just a bit. And then on the topic of math, uh, on the traditional side, there's standard math algorithms, as in uh, you put one number on top of the other, you borrow, you carry, you do long division. That's, those are standard math algorithms. Those are the algorithms that have worked for centuries, uh, as opposed to the primary focus being students developing their own math strategies. So this is a spectrum. There is no teacher who does everything 100% on the left or 100% on the right. So. In my classroom, you will find me on occasion doing things that are on the right side there. And in some very constructivist or progressive teachers, they of course will do some of the things on the left. But nevertheless, we have a general outline of two very different philosophies of teaching, two very different uh, approaches here. Now, when I see this chart in, uh, in education textbooks or in professional development guides or uh, those types of things, you tend to see it in the sense of do less of the stuff on the, on the left and do more of the stuff on the right. Less of this, more of that. Uh, I see that, uh, that fairly often. What I'm going to suggest is the exact opposite. We should do more of the stuff on the left and put less emphasis on the stuff on the right. It is commonly claimed that the research evidence supports the constructivist approach to teaching. This idea that things should be student-directed, stu students create knowledge, uh, you, they develop their own math strategies, that the research evidence supports that. What I'm going to show you today is that's not true. The research evidence strongly, overwhelmingly, supports the teaching practices that I'm putting on the left. And uh, I'm, going to, uh, I'm going to prove that to you, uh, uh, prove that to you during this, uh, this session. So, what are some of these, uh, uh, this research evidence that I'm citing? And I want to start out by quoting a uh, couple of experts that summarize the overall research, and then we're going to delve in a little bit at some specific examples and why this is the case in terms of this uh, traditional method of, methods of instruction. Some of you might be familiar with this individual. Uh, this is Dr. Jean Shaw. Uh, she was a professor of education at Harvard University from 1965 to 1991. Uh, she founded the Harvard Reading Laboratory in 1967, and she was, until her death in 1999, considered one of the world's foremost experts on reading instruction. Suffice it to say, she was an expert. Uh, she knew her stuff, she wrote many books, many articles, and shortly before her death, she wrote one last book that was actually published posthumously. The book is called The Academic Achievement Challenge what really works in the classroom. And what Dr. Chal did was she took a look at the overall research evidence, at the, the, the summaries of the many hundreds and frankly thousands of research studies that have been conducted on this question of what is the most effective way to teach so that way students learn. And here is what she says in this book. Traditional teacher-centered methods 
no, sorry, te traditional teacher-centered schools, according to research and practice, are more effective than progressive student-centered schools for the academic achievement of most children. And that approach is especially beneficial for students who come to school less well-prepared for academic learning, children of less educated families, inner-city children, and those with learning difficulties at all social levels. So if we think about this for a moment, she's saying that traditional teacher-centered schools, that, those, those things on the left side of the spectrum, and uh, much of what I listed on there basically comes straight from, from how she categorizes it in her book, because I think she puts it very well. She's saying here, according to research and practice, the research evidence and the actual experience of teachers, that they are more effective than progressive student-centered schools if we're primarily focused with academic achievement. Now, she qualifies by saying of most children, because of course there's always going to be exceptions. But as far as research goes, it's pretty clear. And you'll notice who it benefits the most. Students who have, uh, who come to school less well prepared. Students from disadvantaged families. This is one of the reasons that I'm always careful to emphasize. This is not about a, this is not a political left versus right debate at all. Some people, they, they look at traditional education, they assume, well, this is right wing, I'm on the left, I'm not interested. Absolutely not. Uh, many of the strongest advocates of the ideas that I'm going to put forward today are on the left of the political spectrum. Why? Because they really want children who are disadvantaged to learn. And those children who have the least advantages are the ones who benefit the most from traditional teacher-centered classrooms. That structure, that focus, that is what they need. Chal is not the only researcher to come to this conclusion. More recently, we have Richard Clark, uh, Paul Kirshner and John Sweller. Richard Clark, Professor of Educational Psychology, Clinical Research Professor of Surgery and Director of the Center for Cognitive Technology at the University of Southern California. Paul Kirshner, Professor of Educational Psychology at the Open University of the Netherlands. John Sweller, Emeritus Professor of Education at the School of Education at the University of New South Wales. They're experts. They know this stuff. They have also written uh, a number of summaries of the research evidence on this question, and they've actually written quite a bit. From, this is what they say in the, uh, uh, 2012, one of the 2012 editions of the American Educator, which is a magazine published by the American Federation of Teachers. Take a look at what they say. Evidence from controlled, experimental, aka gold standard studies, almost uniformly supports full and explicit instructional guidance rather than partial or minimal guidance for novice to intermediate learners. These findings and their associated theories suggest teachers should provide their students with clear, explicit instruction rather than merely assisting students in attempting to discover knowledge themselves. This is about as clear as it gets. What they're saying is that in their expertise, reviewing the research evidence from the best research studies, not the ones where we got five students here and six students there and where, where there, you know, five people are writing about their personal, we're talking about large-scale studies, the ones that are controlled, experimental, control groups. Uh, those ones almost uniformly support full and explicit instructional guidance. Lest there be any misunderstanding about their terms here, and do their terms match with what I'm saying here, here's what they say. Before we describe this research, let's clarify some terms. Teachers providing explicit instructional guidance fully explain the concepts and skills that students are required to learn. They go on to say that you can do that, the teacher can do that in a variety of ways, but the key is the teacher fully explains step by step. In contrast, the method they're criticizing, 
The partially guided approach has been given various names, including discovery learning, problem-based learning, inquiry learning, experiential learning, and constructivist learning. You can give it all the names that you want, but at the end of the day, this is what they found when they reviewed the research evidence. So what is some of this research evidence? Obviously, I don't have time to go through um, all the studies, uh, but I do want to make reference to one in particular. Project follow-through, uh, a major research study. It took place in the United States from 1968 to 1977. It involved more than 72,000 students in approximately 180 schools. This was a huge study, and the students were from, student, were from schools across the country, so this wasn't just inner city or just suburban or just rural. It was actually a mix. There were some rural, some urban, some suburban. And what this study did, uh, it involved K-3 students, and it, they, it compared five different instructional methodologies. One of those instructional methodologies was direct instruction, which is essentially traditional teaching, where the teacher clearly explains the concepts step by step, the students practice, and then, they, uh, and then we move on to the next step. Again, that's not all you do, but that's, that's a key part of it. That's direct instruction, where the it's focused, it's teacher-centered. The other four were various forms of discovery learning and constructivism, uh, where students, it was self-directed by the students. And what the research found was really clear. Direct instruction students gain superior basic math and reading skills. So their basic math skills were better, their reading skills were better, and they also had better reading comprehension and math problem-solving abilities. So even at the, now we get into higher order thinking here, we're, all, we're really big into critical thinking and higher order thinking, well, even there, the direct instruction students uh, did quite well in regards to uh, comprehending what they read and, uh, and math problem solving. And again, this, was, this is not a, uh, uh, you know, a, sec a secret study. This is one that's, that's well known. It's, uh, uh, it's one of many, but um, I'm just using this one as an example because it was, uh, uh, it was just a really, really big, uh, big study. Uh, now, I want to quote from uh, an individual by the name of John Hattie. For some of you will be familiar who he is. John Hattie is a uh, professor of education at the uh, University of Melbourne in Australia. He used to be from New Zealand. Uh, he's written a number of books. Probably the most famous is Visible Learning. And in Visible Learning, John Hattie synthesizes the results of thousands of research studies and, and hundreds of meta-analyses that synthesize these particular research studies. Here is what John Hattie has to say about project follow-through and what happened as a result immediately after. Perhaps the most famous example of policymakers not using or being convinced by evidence was project follow-through. As Carnine commented, the romantic view of students discovering learning was more powerful than a method invented by a teacher that actually made a difference. A method that required an attention to detail, to deliberately changing behavior, and to teaching specific skills. The rejection of direct instruction in favor of Rousseauian-inspired methods is, is a classic case of an immature profession one that lacks a solid scientific base and has less respect for evidence than for opinion and ideology. And one of the things that Hattie is seeking to do is to make our, uh, uh, our practices more research-based. And again, that's Hattie's statement in regards to uh, project follow-through. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty directly worded. And again, I know there are some people here who are likely familiar with Hattie, and, uh, you know, this is, but this is his summary of the uh, of project follow-through. Um, I should mention as well that when I'm quoting research studies, uh, if you're interested in more in terms of information about them, 
the ones I'm quoting, uh, the articles, I have with me. So I'm prepared. If you want to see the article, I have, a, I have them right here with me. You're welcome to, uh, uh, to take a look at them. And if you want more of these, uh, you're welcome to, uh, uh, to contact me and I can, I can certainly provide them. So that's what some of the research is showing. But why? Why is it that this tradi these traditional methods of instruction, why is it that they are so effective? Well, to, to do that, I want to take a look at, uh, at something here. Um, we're going to play, remember the following seven words. I'm going to show you seven words. You can look at them for five seconds. I'm not going to get you to call at your answer, but I just want you to see how easy or difficult it is for you to remember those words. National Congress on Rural Education in Saskatoon. Do you remember it? Probably. I suspect most of you aren't having too much difficulty remembering that, those seven words. Let's try another seven words. Envelope Molded Association, the outside Microsoft plaque. Got it. Anyone feel confident that they know this, the second set of seven words? Probably not. And there's a very simple reason for that. It's called working memory. We only have so much room in our working memories. Um, you didn't have any trouble with National Congress and Rural Education Saskatoon because you didn't need to use your working memory. You know what the National Congress and Rural Education is. You're here, you see all the signs everywhere, you tell, I'm sure you told people, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to the National Congress and Rural Education, and where is it in Saskatoon? You had no trouble with that. Uh, my other thing here, Envelope Molded Association, the outside Microsoft plaque, if that was the name of this conference, you'd know it. If that was what they chose to call, but it's not. It's, those are just seven words, and what you had to do to remember those is you had to go, okay, envelope mold. You're going word by word, and you're struggling. That's just how it is. You have, we have limited working memory. Here's another example. Which is easier to remember? A random 11-digit number. So, for example, 287-410-482-375. I won't take that one off the screen there, but um, just think about how quickly you could commit that to memory. And uh, I'm guessing more than five se seconds, probably even more than 10 seconds. Or how about this one? What if it's your personal phone number plus one extra digit? So let's say your number was 306-867-5309, uh, and then we just add a five after it. Some of you might remember that song too, as you remember it for another reason. Um, you all know your phone numbers. So to add one more number to it, that's easy because you're not using your working memory uh, for your phone number. Uh, and so uh, I know that I experienced this. When I get a call on my cell phone and, uh, and someone leaves me a message, and now, of course, I'm using my phone to retrieve the message and they leave me a phone number, and I don't have a pen with me, and I can't put it on my phone, I have to listen to the thing three, four times so I can remember that number. It's really tough. Um, if you already know that, I see other people experience this too. Um, if you already know the number, or if you, if it helps if you at least know the area code, the more that you can chunk it, the more you, you've got in your long-term memory, the easier this is. Now, what does this have to do with the whole traditional versus more the, the more constructivist approach? It's this idea, something called cognitive load. And this is a term that's used by uh, by psychologists, and the definition is this: cognitive load refers to the total amount of effort being used in the working memory. So I mentioned that people have only a limited amount of working memory. So there's only so much that you can remember if you have to really work at it. And so that's why you're likely, if you hear something new, you're likely to forget it within a short period of time, unless you make a concerted effort to really try to remember it. Because if you meet 10 people and they all give you their phone numbers, you don't write anything down, 
You're not going to remember any of their phone numbers. Good luck remembering their names uh, because you're, 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 you're using your working memory. But we are able to process things and we are able to move on when you have what's called automaticity. Automaticity reduces our cognitive load and makes higher order learning possible. In other words, the more that you have in your brain, the more that you know, the more that you have committed to memory, the better you're going to do at moving on to higher order learning. This applies to math, and I'll give you a math example right away. It applies to science, it applies to social studies. The more you know, the more and the more you have in your long-term memory that you've managed to commit to there, often by repeating it, the better you are to go on to higher order learning rather than sitting and struggling and going, oh, what was this again? Here's another example. Here's a simple algebraic equation. In terms of algebra, this is pretty simple. 3y plus 5 times 6 equals 42. So, of course, we want to know what is y. Now, I'm going to save you the suspense and, uh, and all that of calculating it. Some of you may already know the answer. Uh, the answer is 4. The answer is 4. And the now, think about this for a moment. What do you have to do? What do you have to know in order to be able to do this question properly? See, we could go one route. We could have the, we could put this question up and we could encourage, I could put you into expert groups and you could discuss, you could come up with your own strategies and see what works and, and we could spend the whole class on that and boy, you'd really master your new strategy and some of them would work and some wouldn't and we'd be engaged in dialogue. But that wouldn't really be a good way uh, to teach this here. It's, it's really to do this question and to do more advanced questions, you need to know the following things. You need to know your times table. So you need to know that 5 times 6 is 30. If you don't know that by memory, well, guess what? Now you're having to use your working memory to try to figure out what 5 times 6 is. And in a more complicated question, if you're having to use your working memory to do basic multiplication, uh, forget it in terms of them doing anything remotely advanced in math. Um, you, you need to know the order of operations. So you need to know, uh, as some math teachers call it your bed mass, you know, brackets, exponents, division, multiplication. Oh, you need to know that. So you need to know that we're doing the brackets before we're adding and, and all that. So you, if you don't know the proper order, you're going to get the question wrong. And you also need to know basic addition. So those are just examples of some things uh, that, you need to, that, you need to, uh, uh, that you need to know. And uh, so why do I show you this example? Well, because what I'm explaining here is a direct contrast to what is called, and again, new math, it's not really new, it's been around for decades actually. Um, it's math based on uh, sort of the, the constructivist uh, philosophy approach. Math makes sense, math focus, those math book text, uh, textbook series are, are filled with that. The problem with new math, where students are supposed to develop their own strategies, their own ways of solving things and, their, and, and such, the key problem with that is that, the so, that, that new math, or whatever you choose to call it, it unnecessarily increases cognitive load. It makes the question harder than it has to be. And it's frustrating. And you're, you, you really should just be able to answer the question. And you think about the older math textbooks that show you step by step how to solve the question. I mean, if you have a student that has difficulty with math, the best thing you can do for them is to show them step by step how to do basic math and help them to develop mastery. I used to teach math at the grade five level. Um, and I, I noticed that even students who are very weak or thought they were weak in math, if, once they learn you know, the basics and they can build from there, they can actually do some, uh, some pretty impressive math. Uh, so instead of, the problem with new math is that instead of showing students the most efficient way of solving questions, for example, the standard algorithms, 
where you're putting the number on top of the other, and I mean, this is basic stuff here. Instead of showing students those most efficient ways, it encourages them to create their own less efficient strategies, strategies that might work with this question, but then they don't work for the next question. And uh, uh, some of the people who talk about this the most are math professors at university. Uh, some of you might have heard of an organization uh, or a group called Wise Math, the Western Initiative for Strengthening Education in Math. Uh, it's based in Manitoba, but they also have done work in Saskatchewan and, and lobbied in other provinces as well. These are a group of math professors that are not just simply university professors of math. They actually have a, uh, they, they tutor students, uh, great you know, elementary age students uh, in, in the evenings and such. So they, they do know how to do math. They're not simply your typical, you know, what you think of with math professor that they don't know how to interact with anyone. These are real people who know uh, what you need to do. And one thing that they have told me, because I know each of these people personally, is they make it very clear that if students don't know these basics, if they don't know long division and such, uh, they struggle big time in, uh, in university. The new math also places too little emphasis on the memorization of basic math facts. And uh, what commonly happens here is that uh, when I push on this, when I've had discussions, uh, you know, the argument is, that, well, of course, kids have to memorize some things, such as the timetables. But the question is, okay, how early should they have these things memorized? And what ends up happening uh, is that it, it, gets end, it ends up being pushed to upper grade levels rather than earlier grade levels where they would really benefit from it from the most. Uh, what does the research show? Well, here's a really recent one. Uh, a recent research study, uh, it's called Which Instructional Practices Most Help First Grade Students With and Without Mathematics Difficulties by Paul Morgan, George Farkas, and Steve Machuga. And it was published in Educational Evaluation and Policy Analysis in June of 2014. Again, this is a big study. It analyzed data from more than 13,000 first grade students. And they, it, they broke it down comparing the, and again, I have the study here, but they basically broke it down into student-centered approaches versus teacher-centered, traditional versus constructivist, and they broke that down. And routine drill and practice, the traditional methodology, was the most effective instructional practice, particularly, again, confirming, for students experiencing difficulty in math. So the students who needed the help the most, those are the ones uh, that, uh, that benefited the most from the, uh, from the traditional methodologies. Uh, this, is, has been, this type of these ideas have been into practice. Some of you might have heard of jump math. It's called, uh, also known as Junior Undiscovered Math Prodigies, founded by mathematician John Mighton. Uh, jump is a math instructional program. It's used in schools across Canada and in other countries with great success. Some public schools use it, particularly some parts of BC have implemented it. Uh, it's, uh, it emphasizes basic skills, step-by-step -step scaffolding, and guided discovery. And just so we're clear, yeah, there's some discovery that happens, but it happens in the context of mastering basic skills. And once you've got those, now you can have some fun discovering and you can go on to higher levels. And again, they have a website, jump.org, where you can find more information and supporting research studies. Again, um, they have no trouble listing uh, a variety of research studies that support uh, their, uh, uh, their math instructional uh, approach. So that's a little bit about math. Let's talk, about, uh, let's talk about learning how to read, because obviously uh, it, we want students to, uh, uh, to learn how to read. How do we make sure that a student becomes a fluent reader? Well, a fluent reader, to become a fluent reader, you must be able to do two things. If you can't do these two things, you are not a fluent reader. And we tend to think about the first item on the list, and we sometimes don't think as much about the second item. But the first item, and this is where a lot of the debate has happened, they need to be able to decode the words on a page. So they need to be able to say the word. And if you can't say the words, uh, you know, if you, if you don't know what the word is, 
uh, you're obviously not going to be able to, to read it very well. But in addition to that, you also need to comprehend what the words and sentences actually mean. So it's not enough to simply be able to say the words, you also need to be able to uh, understand what it says within its context. So if someone asked you to summarize what you've just read, you should be able to do that. So well, again, let's take a look at these two things here and break it down in terms of the, these, these two different approaches. Well, one of these, I think many of you are familiar with how the debate has been settled, at least how it's uh, it took a lot longer than it should have, but this the idea of phonics versus whole language, the, that when you have phonics, you teach students what the letters say and the different parts of the words, you put those together and they repeat it again and again and then they know the word. Um, that is classic phonics. Uh, and then in, in contrast to that, you have the, uh, the whole language approach where we encourage students to, uh, to read things in the context, look at the pictures, and to guess at the words, and we don't worry a whole lot about whether they're pronouncing it right. So if you have a, a storybook and it says horse but the student says pony, that's fine. Uh, in the phonics approach, you don't say horse when it's, when, you don't say horse when it's a pony and vice versa. You, you say what the actual word is. This has been like one of the age-old debates in education. And as far as research is concerned, this one's been settled. Phonics wins hands down. Dr. Jean Chol, I mentioned her before, 50 years ago, she published the definitive review of the research showing the superiority of phonics over a whole language. Um, why is phonics so good? Well, learning the letter sounds reduces your cognitive load and makes it possible to sound out more advanced words and then to move on. So the, again, the more you know, uh, the, the, more, the more skills you have, the better you are able to go on to the next level. Now, lest one think that, well, this is sort of her conclusions 50 years ago. Is there anything more recent? Let's go back to John Hattie. Here's how he summarizes it. In summary, whole language programs have negligible effects on learning to read, be it on word recognition or on comprehension. Such methods may be of value to later reading, but certainly not for the processes of learning to read. It appears the strategies of reading need to be deliberately taught, especially to students struggling to read. Again, I think, that's, uh, I think that's pretty definitive, so I won't uh, go too much more on, the, uh, on that issue. I want to talk a little bit about this issue of comprehension, the second item on the list. Because phonics by itself isn't enough. It's not enough just to be able to sound out the words. There's something else you need to be able to do. I want to show you a sentence. The specific teaching of the Old Testament as to predestination naturally revolves around the two foci of that idea, which may be designated general and special, or more properly, cosmical and sociological predestination, or in other words, around the doctrines of the divine decree and the divine election. What does this sentence mean? I'm going to go on a limb and assume that most people here in the audience probably would have difficulty interpreting what this person is saying. And yet, how many words on here do you not know the meaning of? Sociological, you definitely don't know. Predestination, Sorry. maybe. <laughs> but I, most of the words, I mean, we have Old Testament specific teaching. Like you just each, you break each word down individually. Most of the individual words aren't that bad. Yeah, some of them are a bit longer, but there's there and there's a couple that are a bit that, that are that are on the long side. But there's a reason that that most of you aren't understanding what it says. Um, this was written, by the way, by uh, Benjamin Warfield, Princeton theologian back in the, uh, uh, in the uh, 19th century, and he's talking about, uh, for those of you who know your theology, five-point Calvinism, the difference between general and special revelation that, uh, that predestining what happens to the earth is different from the individual salvation plan for people. Anyway, I, I, I read theology, so I find it to be, uh, to be interesting. 
I can understand that because I'm familiar with Warfield. I'm familiar with the, di the, the different theories on this. Uh, and so I don't have much difficulty reading something like that. If you're not familiar with it, you aren't going to have much luck reading that. You can, by the way, good luck, go ahead, use Google all you like. Yeah, you can go ahead, Google whatever word you want and see how long it takes you to figure out what this means if you don't actually have any background knowledge on this topic. Google won't save you here. And this is what frustrates me to no end is that people put their, we, we put our faith in all oh, the students can always look it up. No, they can't. Uh, Knowledge is the key to reading comprehension. The more you know about a topic, the more you will understand what you are reading. This applies to any topic, whether it be sports, politics, history, or science. That's why students can read far above their so-called reading level when they're familiar with the topic. Remember how I mentioned before this contrast between the traditional idea of having a canon of knowledge, of having content that everyone should learn and master, versus students create their own knowledge and we kind of, oh, whatever direction students go as long as there's this just general framework of ELA or whatever, whatever it happens to be in the subject. Uh, the problem here with going that approach is that you're missing out on knowledge. If you want to be able to understand something, uh, that you're reading, you need to know something about that topic. Knowledge makes it possible for you to gain more knowledge. And how do we get students' knowledge? We teach it to them as early as possible. Lots and lots of things, lots of facts, lots of details. Not just rote memorization, but kids love to learn uh, things. And we can be, we can, there's scientific concepts in history. They should know as much as possible. If you're going to read a newspaper article and it's talking about something going on in the House of Commons, you don't know what the House of Commons is, and you don't know what Parliament is, and you don't know how the government works, you're not going to understand that article. And, well, you're not even going to read the article in the first place, which is, uh, which is part of the problem. Um, one thing that I found when I was teaching students uh, particularly at the grade at the grade five level again, is I had to test the reading levels, and I noticed a phenomenal difference when I used same reading level um, and a reading page that the student knew something about off the charts. They knew it; they could read it no problem, even though their reading level was like level was letter F or whatever, like letter D. Um, and then students that were on that really high chart on that on that letter scale, the topic was something they didn't know about. Much worse because knowledge is so key. Uh, does research back this up? Absolutely. Uh, Donna Recht and Lauren Leslie, The Effective Prior Knowledge and Good and Poor Readers' Memory of Text, Journal of Educational Psychology. Key finding in this study, students with high knowledge about baseball, they used a baseball uh, example here, could better understand a text about baseball than students who lacked knowledge. Here's what the study says. Our findings replicated the vast majority of research on the effective prior knowledge on memory. On all measures, children with greater knowledge of baseball recalled more than did children with less knowledge, and what they recalled was more similar to what the experts recalled. Greater knowledge also resulted in better recognition of important ideas and text and the incorporation of those ideas into a summary of the important goal-based action. In other words, the more the students knew, the better they were able to read. And this does not apply just to them understanding baseball. Take a look at how Daniel Willingham puts it. He's a cognitive psychologist at the University of Virginia. In his book, Why Don't Students Like School, he says this, I've listed four ways that background knowledge is important to reading comprehension. It provides vocabulary. It allows you to bridge logical gaps that writers leave. It allows chunking, which increases room and working memory and thereby makes it easier to tie ideas together. And it guides the interpretation of ambiguous sentences. Background knowledge, absolutely key. To have background knowledge, you have to have knowledge. You actually have to know stuff. 
Remember how I mentioned before about the research studies showing that the students who benefit from the most from having knowledge-focused, teacher-centered, clear instruction, students from disadvantaged backgrounds, is because those students, their parents can't hire private tutors for them. Their parents can't afford to take them to the museum. The knowledge they're getting, it's at school and that's it. And if the school isn't giving them knowledge, they're not getting it. And they're not going to discover it on their own. The students who benefit the most, again, disadvantaged students. If you, again, if you know, if, you, if you're a, uh, from a, uh, uh, like a, a privileged background where you're, you're learning everything and you, you know how to read before you go to school and you've already gone to the museum, you know all these things, uh, you can do a lot more discovery because you've already got the necessary uh, background knowledge. Uh, let me just address a couple other things here briefly, and then because I want to make sure I leave time for, for questions. What about this topic of rote learning? Uh, rote learning, it sounds so bad, doesn't it? Learning by rote. We get the image of we just kind of copy and all that. Uh, I remember when I was a faculty of education students, a student, you don't want to drill and kill. I mean, who wants to drill and kill students? It just sounds so awful. Um, however, what is the reality? The reality is that drill leads to skill when done properly. So not really huge on slogans and all that, but since drill and kill is so popular, uh, I say we just say drill leads to skill. I mean, uh, drill for skill, or to put it another way. Again, when you do it properly, not when it's done to excess, because you can do anything to excess, uh, but drill does, uh, does help you. Classic case, times tables, multiplication. Do them again and again and again until you actually, you have to go up to at least nine times nine. If you don't know, have those things memorized, you are going to struggle in math in upper grades. You're going to struggle in, the in math in the grade you're in, but you're really going to struggle uh, going higher up. Does the research support this? Absolutely it does. It's uh, uh, Erickson, Cramp, and Romer, the role of deliberate practice, the acquisition of expert performance, and the psychological review. Uh, a fairly lengthy analysis of the, uh, of the research evidence. Uh, for those of you who, uh, who read Malcolm Gladwell and his 10,000 hours in order to become an expert, this is one of the studies that he references in, in, regards, to that, uh, in regards to that. And, uh, um, and again, it's not hard to understand why practice is important. I mean, uh, I don't know of anyone who became a master piano player by just starting and playing symphonies. You start with scales. I mean, there's some pretty basic stuff you have to do again and again and again. You have to work your way up. Uh, and same thing in, uh, in, in, in many things in life. You have to practice. So whether it's musical instruments, whether it's a sport. And same thing in sports, you do things again and again until they become automatic. Why? So that way you can do the fun stuff. Um, but you have to have some things mastered automatically. And in the modern day debate about education, we tend to disparage rote learning and then we miss out on this critical thing. What about the topic of handwriting? And when I say handwriting, I don't mean simply cursive writing. I'm talking about using your hand to write things down, whether it's printing or, or cursive. Um, well, the evidence on this is pretty clear as well. When stu young students print by hand, it creates memory traces in the brain that assist with the recognition of letter shapes. So in other words, when you are writing, uh, you are especially in grade one and two level, A, B. Not only are you painstakingly printing that letter out, it's, it's, it's getting into your brain because you're having to write it out. Not quite the same thing when you just tap on the tablet. Um, I'm not saying you shouldn't use keyboards and tablets at any point in school because I, I do use them, but let's not forget the fact that writing by hand is really important. Um, cursive writing has benefits too, particularly because it can help you write more quickly and that contributes to reading fluency. Uh, Hedy Rosing, professor of education at the University of Calgary, uh, an article, The Magic of Writing, Dispelling the Myths of Early Literacy Development is currently in review for the reading teacher. And uh, again, her research is, uh, uh, is, is quite clear on this, uh, this question. Uh, what about the issue of technology? Um, we, we, we hear a lot of overblown claims about how important technology is. And 
Um, the integration and effective use of technology is vital to Saskatchewan's teaching and learning environment into enhancing learner, uh, learner success. That's from Saskatchewan Ministry of Education, Technology and Education Framework. I mean, oh, technology is just so important. If you're not up to speed with all the latest technology, if you're not integrating the latest things in your classroom, you're missing out. You're missing out that on your global classroom and all these things. It's 21st century learning. Uh, I'm getting tired of hearing about 21st century learning. It's because it's, we're well into the 21st century, and 21st century really learning isn't really new. Uh, ask me about that if you want, and I'll give you some examples. Uh, but what about technology? What about this claim? What does the research actually show? I'm going to quote from uh, Peter Ryman and Anandito uh, Aditomo, uh, who published an article in the International Guide to Student Achievement that was edited by John Hattie, which is a pretty definitive research book. And here's what they state. It seems safe to conclude that most of the time, ICT does have a positive, albeit relatively small, impact on students' achievement across many content areas. The effect of computer technology seems to be particularly small in studies that use either large samples or randomized control groups. Thus, claims that any particular technology in and of itself will bring large, radical, or revolutionary impact on achievement should be met with skepticism. So, breaking that down, computer technology can be positive. In, you know, it, small positive, but it, there is some evidence that's positive. It's not transformative. Uh, and actually, the research studies that show the least benefit are actually uh, the best research studies, the ones that have randomized control groups and large samples, what most people tend to think of when you think of the research studies, uh, then you, you find less dramatic results. So in all of this, what am I recommending in terms of what should schools do? And the recommendations I'm going to put forward aren't meant to be transformative. They're meant to promote the idea that we should have a shift in our focus on a few things. First of all, we should recognize the importance of specific content knowledge. Let's not disparage knowledge. Let's not say that, you know, we teach, we teach students, we don't teach subjects, and all these types of phrases that kind of, you know, indirectly or directly, you know, lower the value of knowledge and say, you know what, the students can just look it up. No, they can't always just look it up. Specific content knowledge is important. Let's recognize that and act accordingly. Let's encourage teachers to use direct instruction in the classroom. Or to put it another way, don't discourage them from doing it. Don't make their evaluations based on how, you know, the, how much group activity they have and whether it's all you know, discovery-based learning. I do some discovery stuff, and you should see my model parliament I do with grade nines. It's, we, it's, that's as hands-on as it gets. I do that. Uh, but don't make the teachers do that all the time. Don't, uh, don't have all the training focusing all the evaluation, all the in-service presenters always seem to be focusing on the need to not use direct instruction and rather we need to engage them by using groups and all that while they're standing up on a stage explaining stuff, but that's another thing. Uh, let's uh, uh, also, let's allow for some memorization and practice in the learning process. So don't disparage memorization and, and rote learning. Don't take it to excess, but you know, students should memorize some things. They should learn specific things. And finally, we should be wary of the overhyped promises of education fads. Uh, it may be exciting to have the opportunity to flip your classroom and using the three-block model and, uh, and, and all these different phrases that, that come and go. Uh, those are some of the ones of now, some of the ones of the past. You've got uh, uh, you know, open area classrooms, which uh, fortunately aren't used that much now. But watch out for overhyped promises of education fads. If, it's, uh, uh, it's, if you read that report uh, I did on uh, the handbook in Common Sense, the Parents' Guide to Common Sense Education, I quote some examples of people, uh, education professors, in the early 20th century saying the exact same stuff the 21st century learning people do. It's remarkable how similar it is.
it is. The world is changing faster than ever before. All that stuff. I mean, it's you know we're preparing students for jobs that won't be you know that aren't even here yet. That's not new. That's over a hundred years old. Uh, it's uh, anyway. Uh, so I want to thank you for your attention. I'll open up to questions in just a second. Just to make it clear, I'm welcome to more dialogue and feedback. My email's up there, phone number, my website. I put my biz some business cards uh, with my website in particular on your uh, on tables. There is also a paper. You're not obligated to fill it out. It's just simply if you want more info, or, you know, if you want to get a periodically email from me with some latest uh, information, you're welcome to put your name on the on the email list. But you're certainly not required to. And uh, uh, so that's uh, that's so I want to thank you for your attention. And I we've got a few minutes, so I'm going to open it up to. Uh, uh, to questions and comments.